Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. Orson Welles once said, A film is a ribbon of dreams. Put that alongside this other bit of insight from no less a personage than the mystagogue of modern dreaming himself, Sigmund Freud. Quote, With all his tools, man improves his own organs, both motor and sensory, or clears away the barriers to their functioning. In the camera, he has created an instrument that captures evanescent visual impressions while the gramophone record does the same for equally fleeting auditory impressions. Both are essentially materializations of his innate faculty of recall, of his memory. This idea that tools externalize innate faculties would of course become the centerpiece of the work of Marshall McLuhan, for whom all tools, as media, constituted, quote, the extensions of man. So we might ask, what innate faculty does film, the moving image, externalize? Well, if the film artists of the past are any guide, the answer is a resounding, the faculty of dreaming. Orson Welles was not alone in comparing the cinema to the dream, of course. Fellini described films as, quote, dreams we dream with eyes open. And David Lynch said, film to me is a magical medium that makes you dream in the dark. Sometimes there comes a film that seems specifically designed as a kind of proof of concept for this idea the two we discuss in today's episode being wonderful examples. In almost every respect, Vincente Minnelli's 1953 musical comedy The Bandwagon, starring the inimitable Fred Astaire, couldn't be more different from Panos Cosmatos' 2018 psychedelic horror extravaganza Mandy with the also inimitable Nicolas Cage. But on this point, in this notion of film as a form of materialized, wide-eyed dreaming, they're in perfect union. At first, Phil and I were a little apprehensive about jamming these two movies together, but now we're very happy we did, and we hope you will be too. In fact, we hope you'll be so giddy with delight that you'll skip over to the Weird Studies Patreon and become a supporter of the show. You know, there was a time when this obligatory Patreon pitch was the only bit of promotion we had to do in these intros. Not so anymore. We now have a bunch of things to remind you about, and to be honest, that too makes us happy. To wit, on May 23rd, there'll be a live Weird Studies event at Illuminated Brewworks in Chicago to mark the launch of the Weird Studies Black India Pale Ale, an original creation of that brewery. Phil and Meredith will be there in the flesh, and I'll be there via video link, hopefully on a giant screen. Details on how to purchase tickets for this exclusive engagement will follow shortly. Keep your eyes on this space, and the Twitter space, and the Patreon space. Then there's my new online course with Neuralearning, Learning, Groundwork for a Philosophy of Magic, Truth, Modernity, and the Reality of Fantasy, which begins on Tuesday, May 3rd. We're talking seven weekly lectures and group discussions on a topic that is sure to interest many Weird Studies listeners. There's still time to enroll, so visit neuralearning.com, 
That's nuralearning.com for more info. Promotion done. On with the show. We hope you enjoy it. should probably take ownership of what is possibly a terrible idea. Go ahead. Two films. Yeah. One, the 1953 film musical comedy, The Bandwagon, starring Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse, along with Oscar Levant, one of my favorite character actors of all time, and Jack Buchanan and Nanette Fabre. So that is one thing we are looking at. And the other thing is the 2018 psychedelic horror action flick Mandy starring Nick Cage. Yep. So as I've been saying in a variety of contexts, this is the Nick Cage Fred Astaire crossover you've all been waiting for. I watched both films yesterday, so I did experience it as a kind of double bill, weirdest double bill ever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh Thoroughly enjoyed both films. I'd seen Mandy before. I'd never watched The Bandwagon. I'm not very, um, I haven't seen very many musical comedies, but since I've met you, Phil, also having my two daughters, you know, I, we, we watched uh, Sound of Music and stuff like that. So I've gotten into musicals more since um, over the last uh, several years. And I really appreciate what's going on in musicals cinematically. And maybe we'll get into some of that. So anyways, I enjoyed that film, and Mandy I'd seen before, and I had been trying to get you to watch it, and apparently the only way to get you to watch Mandy was to plan out a double bill where we'd also watch The Bandwagon. Where each of us would assign the other a film that we would normally not watch. Exactly. Me, because I am a wuss when it comes to violence, and horror is not my genre, Although some of my favorite things in the world, like John Carpenter's The Thing or Twin Peaks Season 3, some of my favorite things in the world are hard, but I have to kind of take a deep breath. I have to nerve myself to watch a horror film because I'm a complete wuss. And you, actually, this where this started was me sort of thinking about like, you know, just for once, I want us to talk about a piece of straight up Apollonian formalist An artwork that places form and elegance over passion. Right. We always skew Dionysian word in our choices of the things we want to talk about. And as I said to you, basically the first serious conversation we ever had, Apollo's a god too. And so we want to give some respect to that Apollonian, I don't know, I'm trying to, there's a Latin expression I'm, I'm trying to pull out of my head that has to do with like light and clarity and luminosity. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So uh, this is, if nothing else, a study in contrast in Apollonian and Dionysian. It's like having a blueberry muffin topped with hot queso. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That might be a good place to start. What the hell are we talking about? Apollonian and Dionysian. Yeah. So this goes back to like, Phil just said to our first ever, I mean, our second conversation, because we met the night before the event. Phil and I did an event together back in 2015. Yeah. In Ottawa at uh, Octopus Books. And it was just after my book came out. And uh, 
in the course of that conversation, we we, and we were talking about reclaiming art and the, the theory and all that. And um, Phil brought up this very important point, which is that my book was is very Dionysian in its um, sensibility, let's say, whereas Apollo is also a god of art. And um, sure enough, uh, if you listen to our episode on Jung's aesthetic theory that we did last year, Jung basically breaks down, he uses Schiller's distinction between two forms of art, the sentimental and the... Naive and sentimental. Right. Which, yeah. which you know, correlate with Apollonian and Dionysian. And in the context of that Jung piece, introversion and extroversion. Exactly. So there's a nice dichotomy there that we've been using. So I guess you'd say in this case that Mandy is a very Dionysian film and uh, The Bandwagon is a very Apollonian film. Although, strangely enough, I find that both kind of explore the other. <laughs> I think that in a way, The Bandwagon is about that. It's about mm. two theories of art being put to yes. the test. Uh, yes. One of which has to do with passion and, and the plundering of the soul, let's call it. And the other one has to do with form and beauty and, and surfaces. Yeah. Um, those will be our ballasts uh, today, but who knows where we'll go because... A framing conceit. <laughs> yeah, because we need, we, God knows we need a framing conceit. We need something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then at the same time, if past is prologue, well, we will abandon it within 10 minutes and just kind of... Which is great. Go uh, yeah. and talk about whatever it is we're going to talk about. Exactly. So I had a thought, maybe as a way of kicking off the show, each of us could summarize the plot of the film that we assigned the other. So I would summarize the bandwagon. You could summarize Mandy. Sure. Let's start with the bandwagon. So the bandwagon is 1953 musical comedy picture, MGM, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer studio, which was the great film studio for the golden age of film musicals. Like I said, stars Fred Astaire. And Fred Astaire, at the time he made this, was a little bit yesterday's man. His career really took off in the 30s with a series of pictures he did with Ginger Rogers for RKO. Those are enduring classics of cinema. And as I think I've said on at least a Patreon show, if it were possible to choose your heaven, you know, after you're dead, I would elect to live in a heaven composed largely of the 1930s Astaire Rogers RKO pictures. Mm. That is my vision of heaven. But by the 1950s, Astaire was older, well into middle age, and he still had it. He was still the most elegant motherfucker of all time, incredible dancer, and a great actor for musical film. But The Bandwagon is a kind of a reflexive film because it's about a guy named Tony Hunter, played by Fred Astaire, and it's basically Fred Astaire playing himself who finds himself to be behind the times, washed up, nobody's interested in him anymore, and he has an opportunity to perform as a song and dance man in a Broadway show that his friends, the Martins, have written. And it's a show about a children's book writer who is behind on his payments, and so he starts writing lurid crime fiction in the Mickey Spillane mold and becomes really successful at it, but now he's got this kind of double life, and that's the situation for like a musical comedy show that they want to put on. And a pompous, kind of visionary, genius man of the theater, played by Jack Buchanan, Jeffrey Cordova, based on Jose Ferrer, a real-life 
kind of polymath artistic figure of the Hollywood golden age. Jeffrey Cordova is going to produce it, but when he hears the pitch, he's like, ah, the Faust story. He wants to turn it into an updating of Faust. And he ends up basically co-opting and ruining what was supposed to be a nice little musical comedy and turning it into this pompous, overwrought, moralistic, <laughs> yeah, moralistic, yeah, a pretentious piece of drama, serious drama, and it completely bombs. And then at the end, after it's bombed, Fred Astaire, or Tony Hunter, decides that he is going to use his own private fortune to underwrite a revival of the show where they're going to get back to their roots. They're going to put in all the comedy and the songs and dances that got cut out when it was being turned into a version of Faust. And they're going to, you know, get back on the circuit and perform to all these different houses and get it back to where they can show their face in New York City. And then they, you know, the, the film ends, of course, with the triumphant performance in New York City. And through all this, there's, of course, a love plot. Love plot is always, in a sense, formally speaking, the most important part of any musical comedy. And that is played by Sid Cherie. So, you know, Ginger Rogers had stopped working with Fred Astaire at this point. And Sid Cherise is an interesting leading lady for him to be cast against. We can talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that. But in the story, she's a ballet dancer who is being brought over to the popular theater. The idea is that this is going to be kind of like a grand fusion of popular and high culture. And so the idea is that you're going to have this old time Broadway hoofer, Tony Hunter, dancing with a ballerina, Gabby. And at first they hate each other and their artistic differences are overlaid on their personal differences. But of course, they fall in love and of course they end up kissing in the last scene, which is the most unromantic kiss ever. Yeah. It, it really looks like what happens when you take two Barbie dolls and just like mash them. Well, that's what you said about Deckard and uh, Rachel's kiss in Blade Runner. So you can't have two scenes that get the, the They're top tied prize. for first. They're tied for first for, okay. for most unconvincing kiss. I don't actually think there's a ton of chemistry between Astaire and um, Sid Charisse, but I don't care <laughs> because everything in this film is so formally perfect. It, it is, is so beautiful. It's a dream of Apollonian clarity and light. Aha! You said the key word. The key word, dream. Yes. So that, that ladies and gentlemen, is The Bandwagon. Yeah. Wonderful film. And I have to say, Ben, it sounds pretty run of the mill when you listen to Phil describe the story, at least in terms of what it what it depicts. Uh, yeah, the plot's kind of the, nothing. Yeah. But it's actually a very strange film. And it does a lot of really interesting things with the musical form. And it's going to be fun discussing it.
All right. Mandy is a film by Panos Cosmatos, who's a Canadian filmmaker. Mandy was his kind of a breakout film for him. Um, at least it got a lot of attention because it starred Nicolas Cage, who, much like Fred Astaire, was a bit washed up in 2017 when uh, this came out. Well, that was a year where Nick Cage did a bunch of films that got a lot of attention. Another one that came out at almost the same time, I think, was Color Out of Space, which is, a, I, I think, a wonderful adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's uh, story. Mandy is a heavy metal romance, really drawing on the heavy metal aesthetic of the 1980s, late 70s and 80s, to create a surreal setting a strange world in which this very simple drama unfolds. It's a revenge story. Nick Cage plays a lumberjack, <laughs> um, professional uh, forestry. Um, uh, God damn it. What am I, I saying? Think we, I think we got it with lumberjack. Yeah. It's just lumberjack makes it sound like a fairy tale or something. There must be a modern yeah, term for it. Yeah, but... There is actually kind of a yes, fairy tale exactly. quality to this. So it's kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah. he's a, actually, why don't you use the word woodsman? A woodsman, right. He's he, a woodsman. Let's, let's lean into the fairy tale quality. That's great because I think you're right there. I think he is the archetypal woodsman. The woodsman in fairy tales often comes in as a kind of white knight uh, <laughs> without armor. <laughs> but with an axe, yes. So he plays a woodsman who lives in this cabin in the woods with his girlfriend, Mandy whom he loves very, very much. And she's an artist and a dreamer and a benefit of a strange cat. And um, she has an encounter while walking down this dirt road with the leader of a Jesus freak cult. These are washed up hippies who have, I guess, clamped down on a very specific ideology in the aftermath of the cultural revolution that was the 60s. And uh, this cult leader, whose name is, I forget his name now. Do you remember his name? Yeah, Jeremiah Sand. Jeremiah, yeah, Jeremiah Sand, right. Uh, spots her and falls in love with her immediately and then basically decides that he needs this woman. And so uh, the cult summons some demonic bikers to help them out. The black skulls. <laughs> they actually summon these demonic bikers, apparently from some other dimension, it seems. Uh, there are lots of hints in this film that this is not taking place on Earth. There are strange planets in the sky above the landscape. It's just very, very weird and surreal. Anyways, these black skull bikers uh, help the cult break into the cabin. The, the cult leader tries to seduce Mandy, but fails utterly. She basically laughs at him in this tremendous scene. It's just this one of the most pathetic scenes I've ever seen in my life in a film. Um, <laughs> she, he fails to seduce her. And then drowning in kind of shame and embarrassment, he decides to, uh, or he at least he believes that his God tells him to kill her. And so they burn her alive in front of Nicolas Cage's character, who is essentially crucified at that point, tied to a... Yeah, bound with like barbed wire to a post and gagged with barbed wire, which is a particularly hideous touch. Because it doesn't accomplish the, the goal of gagging. So it doesn't really gag you. It just cuts your mouth up. Yeah. Uh, and then they leave. Um, after they've committed this atrocious murder, they leave, the cult does, and uh, Nick Cage frees himself. And then the second act of the film begins, which is his revenge. And so the rest of the film is him uh, wreaking vengeance on these people, both the, the Black Skull biker demons and the cult. 
and the film just follows this kind of like iron logic as it just works through the necessary steps until his revenge is accomplished completely. And it is incredibly violent, but also incredibly beautiful. Yeah. It's just this gorgeous, luscious, strange, surreal masterpiece, I think, anyways. And that's that. Yeah, that's Mandy in a nutshell. One thing about Mandy, the instrument of his revenge is an axe, which is appropriate for a woodsman. But he forges an axe and I am a sucker for forging the weapon of destiny scenes. Like it's in Wagner's Siegfried. It's in Conan the Barbarian. I'm trying to think, is it Lord of the Rings? Is it Lord of the Yeah, the four the well, the sword that was broken and is the, re- the reforging of the yeah, sword. Reforging of the sword. It's 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 an old, I mean it's, it's a an, major fantasy trope. And I am here for it. It's one of my favorite fantasy tropes. Yeah, same here. One of my a beautiful example of that can be found in Lord Dunsany's The King of Elfland's Daughter, when the witch makes a sword for the son of the Lord who's gonna go and into Elfland. It's a wonderful scene. Yeah, the forging. And there's an obvious tribute to the opening sequence of Conan the Barbarian in Mandy when he's forging the sword. The way that it's shot really reminds one of the the famous opening of Conan. Yep. It is fucking awesome. And in this case, it's an axe. And it's not just, it's like a a beautiful chrome sculpture. uh, Yeah. (laughs) And yes, it is important that it's an axe because he is the woodsman, right? Um, Yep. You know, for some reason, Fiona, well, I've been telling her Little Red Riding Hood every night. Uh, she's nine years old, but she just still likes to get a story before bed. But we've been developing the story. So a lot more has happened in Little Red Riding Hood. But the woodsman, um, like, what is that? The woodsman is he's not Prince Charming, but there's a weird parallel here with the archetypally speaking. The woodsman comes to exact the judgment of God. That's what happens <laughs> in Little Red Riding Hood. He's the angel of death. Ooh, I thought of another parallel between Little Red Riding Hood and Mandy, which is some versions of Little Red Riding Hood, the wolf just eats Little Red Riding Hood, the end. Yeah. And I don't know the textual transmission, how that works, who wrote which version that ended up being the one that everybody knows, but in the one that everybody knows, doesn't the woodsman cut the wolf open? Yeah. And she pops back out and she's fine. Along with her grandmother, yeah. Yeah. Well, you could say that in Mandy, you know, the big bad wolf gets Mandy and swallows her up. That's right. And at the end, what has happened is when he's been captured by the Black Skulls, turns out the Black Skulls are like insane, but also almost mutated. And the story goes, there's this mysterious chemist who lives somewhere in the woods who brewed up a batch of bad acid to fuck with this biker gang. And somehow it's like mutated them. Anyway, this acid has, it seemingly turns them into near invulnerable monsters, into these just fucking ogres. Yeah. And this is exactly what happens to Nick Cage. After he kills a couple of the black skulls in their lair, he finds this jar of like acid paste and just like starts tripping really hard. And you get the sense that he just goes irretrievably insane. And at the end, after he has killed every last person except for one there's one cult member who is not a vicious psychopath and he spares her after everybody's dead he gets back in his car and he hallucinates mandy sitting there and and he's sort of smiling at her and they start driving off and he's back in this sort of contented world where mandy's she's back just yeah like yeah, it's, it's just like, like a... popped out of the belly of the wolf yeah 
People like to say that those endings are usually, oh, those were tacked on later to make them, you know, palatable to Victorian folk. But in fact, the book of Job has the same ending, you know, uh, yeah. Job's life goes to absolute hell, but at the end, everything's restored to him. That's an old archetype. Uh, it's, it's not just a modern a way of like uh, making stories more palatable. It's actually in some old, old stories. So at the end, he, you say he hallucinates Mandy. And I agree. That's the impression we get because the camera cuts and then she's not sitting with him in the car anymore. But, you know, this film is so hallucinatory that one you have to wonder whether a hallucination you have within a hallucination is still a hallucination. Right. Like, is she back or is she not? Who knows? He seems to get transmissions from her in uh, like cartoon transmissions from her in the film sometimes where she yeah. imparts some information to him. He has a dream where he basically sees something that she was reading about in, in a novel. So there seems to be some kind of telepathic transmission from her mm. spirit mm -hmm. to him. But anyways... So Mandy, I mean, it's the type of film you'd expect us to cover because it's so profoundly weird. But I think that both films have a lot of weirdness in them and a lot of interesting things. And I'd like maybe I'd like to start with just one parallel I noticed is that both of these films have the same form. They're very similar, formally speaking, structurally. <laughs> in The Bandwagon, you have basically two parts to the film. In the first part, they're trying to put this musical together and they're working towards uh, mounting this revolutionary, tragic, modernized version of Faust. And then that fails. And then at the end, they decide to go back to their original idea. And then structurally what happens in the film is that the film turns into this kind of like smorgasbord explosion of affect where you get one number after another, this kind of yep. like orgiastic Dionysian explosion yeah. of, of spectacle. So the, yep. the second half of the last, sorry, I've, the last third or last quarter of the film is basically just random numbers from this show that we never yeah. really get to see um, we never see the show we see the numbers yeah the that's numbers right. yeah and it's very similar to mandy where you, you have this really kind of um deliberate paced driven movement towards the the death of mandy in the first part of the film and after that once the revenge starts once that sequence begins it's just basically vignettes of like Nicolas Cage kicking the shit out of one person after another. Right. And so it's just weirdly similar structurally in that oh, way. Yeah. yeah. Well, because movies that have episodes of singing and dancing and movies that have episodes of fighting are patterned in very similar ways. They're works of numbers, you know, like a show number. Yeah. Set pieces. You know what I mean? Like, the, yeah, set pieces. You know, if I'm comparing it, say, to opera, an older medium, there's going to be a certain amount of talking, which in grand opera and the sort of higher operatic forms, everything is sung. And but so the speech stuff is in a kind of speech-like kind of music called a recitative. And then when you want to really express an emotion, the music wells up and we have like a song-like music, arias. And so like operas are collections of numbers, arias interspersed with action, which is done in this kind of like very parlando, talky kind of singing. So the big problem with opera has always been integration. You've got these numbers and you have a story. How do you integrate the numbers in the story or the story in the numbers? And there's a wide variety of genres in film that work basically the same way, where yeah. it's their narratives of numbers. So kung fu movies, like martial arts movies are like that. Each 
fight is a set piece that has to be set up by some kind of plot, some talking. But the actual fight is a moment of expression, an expression of the righteous rage of the hero or whatever. And likewise with the musical, you have a series of song and dance numbers, and the question is always the same, like, is the emphasis more on just the spectacle, the, the pleasurable singing and dancing, or is it going to be on the overall structure that bears those numbers? And horror also is a genre that heavily rests on this idea of a sequence of numbers, like a slasher film. A slasher film, yeah. You yeah, know, like a spam in a cabin film, as Joe yeah. Bob Briggs liked to say. Likewise, has a series of kills, and each kill is a set piece, right? And another another form, another example is porno. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. classic and porno. As the example of porno might indicate, narratives that are very number based, that are oriented to set pieces, tend not to be the most critically esteemed genres. And so, film musicals have always been considered trash by mainstream critics until relatively recently. It was only, I don't know, around year 2000, maybe the 90s, where scholars started to actually, in other words, long after the heyday of the musical, scholars started to find really interesting things to say about musical films. But likewise, horror has had a long, twisty path to critical recognition and respectability. Likewise, martial arts movies. Basically, anytime you've got a narrative that's structured around set pieces, yeah. there are interesting problems that that introduces. Mm -hmm. The pressure's off the writing, you know, in a way. It's really yeah. about the, I guess, choreography taken as a kind of, in a broad sense, it becomes yes. much more important. And so you'll, you, I think you do tend to see in those genres, tend to see cheap storytelling that exists purely to serve, to justify the numbers. But that's not Absolutely. necessarily the case. It's certainly not the case in Minnelli, Vincente Minnelli, who directed uh, The Bandwagon. And it's not the case with Panos Cosmatos either. Mm -hmm. What's interesting in these two films is that the really spectacular numbers are just pushed towards the end of the film. So yes. that once you cross into that zone at the end, once you get past that plot point, either the failure of the tragic Faust story in the bandwagon or the death of Mandy in Mandy, once you get past that, you're basically in a strange psychedelic variety show where it's just like exactly. one thing after another. Yep. I find that interesting. Uh, are there any other parallels that you picked up on? Oh, okay. So here's a consequence of what we were just saying about a number-driven narrative structure. You said it yourself, quite right. This takes a lot of pressure off the writing. Yeah. The number-oriented genres tend not to be writer's genres. They tend not to be places where writers feel that they can put all of their you know, complex thoughts and their rounded three-dimensional characters and so on. And indeed... Those genres suffer from critical disesteem, if that's even a word, yeah. because it's writers who are writing about them and writers don't find <laughs> their favorite shit in a non-writer oriented medium. Right. Then what is it oriented to? Spectacle and performance. Like the genius of the bandwagon is partly the genius of, you know, Minnelli, and we can talk about some interesting choices he makes, but so much of it is the genius of a stare. Yes. A genius of movement, an absolutely incredible knack for moving beautifully and expressing things about the character, about the situation through a basically wordless 
medium, which is to say the medium of human movement. Likewise, in Mandy, there are a lot of aesthetic and musical choices that have no real complement in the bandwagon. Uh, it wouldn't do to overdraw the comparison between these two very dissimilar films. But one thing has in common a leading man who absolutely anchors the film in performance. Mandy wouldn't have been shit without Nicolas Cage. Even with all of its visual inventiveness and its crazy over-the-top style, it's Nicolas Cage's performance, and more abstractly, it is the virtues of performance and spectacle that make that film what it is. But those kinds of virtues that you know, horror and musicals have in common are the kind of things that takes a special kind of critical sensibility to yeah. really fasten onto them. It's funny because uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Leslie showed me that scene from Moonstruck, Nicolas Cage scene where he, I think he lost his hand in that movie or something. I don't know. I remember seeing this, but anyways, this classic scene from uh, Norman Jewison's Moonstruck that I've, that's not a film I've ever watched, but uh, Leslie loves that movie. And she showed me this one scene where Nicolas Cage, one of his first roles really. And I was struck then, I was Moonstruck by the physicality of Nicolas Cage. And, and this is something I always kind of knew, but never became conscious of. He's a very, very physical actor. He acts with his body and sometimes to his detriment. But when he's in the right role, I find that, like you just said, he, he kind of makes the film he's in. He just reinvents the movie with his presence. And certainly Mandy is absolutely tailor-made for his style. And again, you don't want to go too far with the comparison, but in a way, Nicolas Cage is a kind of Astaire-like actor in that sense. He's, mm. he's so much about the movement of the body. He's not dancing, but... Absolutely. Yeah, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a... The thing... Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, but there's a scene in Mandy. It's a wonderful, harrowing scene right after he frees himself from his bonds and crawls back into his cabin and then slowly comes to realize what he just witnessed, this horror he just witnessed. He basically goes into this bathroom and finds a bottle of booze he'd hidden away, because we know from uh, an earlier shot in the film that he's basically a recovering alcoholic. He doesn't drink anymore. And he finds this bottle of vodka or gin, and he just freaking chugs it while he's raging and weeping and sobbing. And it, the scene goes on for several minutes. It's like a Fred Astaire number. It's like a dance number. Even the camera's placed like you'd place it in a musical, as far as possible, so you get the entire set and That's then the right. movement of the actors within it. Oh, that's so, a good point. Neither of us had thought of these parallels before we watched them together, but no. there are these strange resonances between the two films.
I want to read from David Thompson's biographical dictionary of film. It has an absolutely marvelous little essay on Fred Astaire that says some of the best things I've ever read about either Fred Astaire or, for that matter, the aesthetics of the film musical. And I think it's probably going to help us a little bit in thinking about Mandy as well. Sure. So Thompson talks about how so much of Astaire is a matter of stylish carriage. And he leads off this little essay look by saying, what makes for great acting in this cinema? This is a quote. There is a good case for arguing that, in the event of a visit by creatures from a far universe, ignorant of the cinema, one would do best to show them some steps by Astaire as the clinching evidence of the medium's potential. Better than the noble actors, Olivier, Jennings, Brando, Barrymore, et al., Astaire is the most refined human expression of the musical, which is, in turn, the extreme manifestation of pure cinema, the lifelike presentation of human beings in magical, dreamlike, and imaginary situations. Mm. I would like to emphasize that last sentence, mm -hmm. why I love film musicals and why I think film musicals are worthy of being talked about in situations like, for example, this show where you may not have expected us to talk about an old MGM film musical. The way that musicals are extreme manifestations of pure cinema, the lifelike presentation of human beings in magical, dreamlike, and imaginary situations. To me, musicals are pure fantasy. Yeah. The purest of fantasy. And Astaire, the point that Thompson is making, is somebody who embodies the special kind of magic that that particular brand of fantasy specializes in. It's the ability of the human body, either in dancing movement or in song, to conjure alternate realities. I mean, yeah. in a very direct and literal way. Yeah, totally. And he continues, as I say, Thompson continues to point out that Astaire is, um, in some ways, not a good actor. I, like, there are a lot of roles that Astaire did later in life that were not musical numbers. Thompson has a funny line about how in a lot of those roles, when he's not singing and dancing, he looks like a philosopher at a bingo session. <laughs> <laughs> An embarrassing and depleting sense of a man having been caught on the blind side, you know, but he's like, but what is Astaire good at? Like at, in what he does well in his classic musical films, he is supreme. And what is that? And Thompson argues it is the mere business of moving, not even necessarily dancing, although that's of course what we remember. But he talks about how he was teaching a class where he wanted to look at Silk Stockings, which is a great late period Astaire musical. And they ended up actually not even getting to the dance number, but looking at a passage immediately preceding it. This is a quote from Thompson. Charisse arrives by car, said Charisse was his co-star also in Silk Stockings. Charisse arrives by car at the studio gates and Astaire, muttering, hello, hello, hobbles over to meet her. That movement kept us from the dance because it was exquisite, original, and Astaire. The emotion of the moment of lovers reunited hardly seems to strike him. But ask him to move from A to B, and he is aroused. <laughs> and and there's a point he's trying to make. He's like, actually, the emotional content of the scene is ultimately not that interesting or important to Astaire. At least it's not what he's best at. What he's best at is the pure poetry of movement, yeah. which is actually quite abstract. And this is why I was saying at the beginning, there's something I love about film musicals is their formalism. 
a lot of the time people will complain about film musicals that the plots are corny, the situations are unbelievable, romances are cliche, and this and this and that. And again, this is wanting a non-writerly medium to evince writerly virtues of like three-dimensional characters and original settings and so on. But I think what Thompson's putting his finger on is like the pure formalism of simply movement. Like in the bandwagon, the first number we get is Astaire singing a very low-key number called By Myself. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those numbers that he transitions to. At first, he's not singing, but he's just humming a song in his head to himself. And then that transitions to singing. And also his movement, he's just walking down a train platform. Yeah. That's it. And yet the poetry of the moment is in the walking. This isn't something that I can mine intellectual content from. I can't come up with like a, a clever theory of the movement. The movement kind of is what it is, a pure form. And it's on that level that I find musicals actually do that mysterious business of conjuring fantasy. They conjure fantasy through the abstract play of light and color, movement, movement and sound. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Astaire is the personification of that kind of grace. I wouldn't call it grace in the case of Nicolas Cage, but it's something similar. There's something yes. there, right? Uh, the face. You know, I think, I think it was Ingmar Bergman says... Cinema is about the face, the human face. Yes. But what he meant by that was the movements of the human face. The human face is a pure form. And Bergman yep. is the master of the face. One day we might do a show on Persona, which is a fantastic Ingmar Bergman movie, which is all about the face. But the face is landscape. The face is organism. The face is as organ. The face is kind of like a surface upon which the world reveals itself to one. Mm -hmm. All this stuff is very much relevant when we talk about Nicolas Cage. And I would say the same about Fred Astaire, but then, of course, it's the entire, it's the long shot, the, the wide shot, the whole human body moving through space. You know, Deleuze wrote a, a wonderful set of books on, on film, cinema, one and two, two volumes, absolutely amazing, strange philosophy that was, for me, that was my real entry point into Deleuze's uh, philosophy was through that because I was aspiring to make films at the time when I read it. And it basically just turned my interest in film into an interest in philosophy. One of the first things he points out is that he makes reference to Henry Bergson's disdain for film. Because when Henry Bergson was doing this thing at the turn of the century, cinema was brand new. And Bergson used it as an example of how we misunderstand movement. He said, cinema is basically one still image after another. And when you run them fast enough, it looks like movement. He says, that's how we think of movement. We don't think of movement itself. We think of movement as though it was like a film reel. But Deleuze says, well, that's fair enough. I mean, that makes his point. But what Bergson misses is that film gives us for the first time movement in itself with this illusory kind of technique of like very quickly processing one still image after another it gives us pure movement the first films you know the legendary lumiere brother films were all just some very basic movement that's all it was it wasn't story yet it was like a horse galloping or a train coming out of yep. a tunnel this was what 
got people excited. And they were basically seeing things they saw every day, but to see them framed so that the movement alone is what's being revealed to it. The mystery of movement. Because hmm. movement, as Bergson makes clear, is something we cannot conceptualize. It is impossible to think movement in itself. We must think in terms of concepts, and concepts are always static, still frames, right? And so that's what the magic of the cinema was. It was this revelation of movement in itself for the first time in an artistic medium. And uh, Deleuze really kind of emphasizes that part of it, not so much the fact that it's an essential illusion of movement, but that through this illusion, it gives us real movement. For Deleuze, the first part of the history of cinema was all about the movement image. And you can see that in the musical. The mu musical is kind of the, and the Western, you know, those silent Westerns where it's all, it's almost like a dance, right? They're falling off, you know, staircases yeah. and climbing up. It's like all the stunt work and it's basically a kind mm -hmm. of musical. But then after the war, things change and the, a new type of image becomes possible for, according to Deleuze after the war, and that's the time image. And the time image is when, uh, whereas the movement image is always about sensory motor chains of action and reaction. So if you think about old, you know, pre-war action films, any type of film, really, you have someone say something, somebody reacts, there's one movement, and then there's a reaction to that movement. Everything's kind of caught up in this kind of machine, this dramatic machine of, of uh, sensory motor causes and effects. After the war, you, you suddenly start seeing scenes in, in films that are very different. Deleuze's favorite example is the scene in Europa 51 by Rossellini, where Ingrid Bergman's character visits a factory. And she's kind of this bourgeois woman, and she's starting to realize that the class system that makes her comfortable life possible is profoundly unjust. This is during Rossellini's uh, Marxist phase, this film. And she goes to this factory and there's this long sequence where he's just basically shooting machines, just these huge industrial machines and these workers, almost like zombies moving through this factory space. And, and you're constantly cutting back to Ingrid Bergman's character, who is just shocked and kind of traumatized by what she's seeing, but you're not quite sure what it is she's seeing till later. She tells uh, another character, she says, I thought I saw convicts. I thought I saw convicts. In other words, she was in a factory, but what she was seeing was prisoners. And for Deleuze, that whole sequence isn't about the plot of the movie anymore. You're in this space where you're seeing something jump out of the chain of sensory motor causes and effects, something that stands on its own and that reveals something about the world to us that is not reducible to the story. It's an image that pops out. And so Deleuze's whole cinematic theory is basically a numbers-based theory of film. Wow, that's interesting. He saw film purely in terms of moments that explode the all-too-easy narrative devices we use to contain films and kind of put them in their place. Oh, um, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, so for him, the musical is super important. And the musical for him is a perfect example, especially post-war musicals where you start to see strange things like you see in The Bandwagon, where The Bandwagon is a film about a musical. This isn't Deleuze, this is me trying to apply his thought now, but right. The Bandwagon is about artists putting together a musical. And so you'd expect in a film like that, you'd expect the musical numbers to be diegetic, to be part of the story. You're seeing the numbers that they're putting together 
in their show. Yeah. But in fact, you have a mixture. You have numbers that are from the show and you also have regular, you know, musical numbers that kind of just pop out of the lives of the characters themselves. So as you mentioned yes. at the beginning, Fred Astaire has a couple of numbers. This is before he's on stage practicing or rehearsing a show. It's like they're making a musical in a world that is already a musical, which is kind of weird. Yeah. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yes. So that would be a kind of time image where you're exploding the kind of purely formal container of the story. Things are always exceeding the sensible into, and reaching into this kind of imaginal realm where it's really unclear where the line can be drawn between dream and reality. And this is something that mm. musicals do. I'll end on this. Musicals do better than any other form is there's always this moment in a musical where we slip from the real world into the dream world. Yes. So Fred Astaire all of a sudden starts to sing like the shoeshine song. Yeah. Where it's, it's about getting a shoeshine and he starts to sing. And all of a sudden we haven't changed sets. We're still in the place he was when he just sat down to get a shoeshine. But all of a sudden people are watching him and smiling. Everyone's participating in this number. The whole world turns into a dream seamlessly. So we're slipping in yes. and out of the dream world in yes. and out of the interiority of the character without there necessarily being a hard cut as there was often in musicals before the war. So in Wizard of Oz or something. Actually, um, though, this is one of my favorite sort of sub 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 topics within film musicals is transitions from ordinary ass reality to the dream reality and how promiscuously mingled those things are mm -hmm. in film musicals. And that I think actually you can find lots of examples of that pre-war. I think yeah. that's maybe where the periodizing part of the time crystal argument breaks down a little bit, but at the same time, that shouldn't empower our appreciation of a wonderful way of thinking about film, because regardless of how you periodize it, it's still absolutely true. There are certain films that are all about that, like the motor chain. And then there are films that specialize in exploding out of it. And I love that you use that word explode, because that's the always the feeling you're exploding out of a frame of logic and causality. Mm -hmm. And I am convinced, from, certainly from conversations with musical-hating friends of mine, or for that matter, my own previous self, I, there was a period uh, when I was younger when I didn't think I liked musical films until I watched a bunch and realized that, in fact, I love musical films. An excuse I would have given back when I was young as to why I don't like them is that I find it corny and unbelievable when people just start singing and dancing as if that's a thing that people do. It seems incredibly unrealistic and contrived, right? Right. In order to enjoy musical films, you really need to have to go with that convention because it's so deep in the logic of the genre. Like in as much as musicals are fantasy, that's how where the fantasy comes in, yeah. is in that transition where suddenly the gravitational force of everyday logic, everyday causality, the, just the rules of existence, all of a sudden that gravity, it's as if gravity is briefly for a few minutes suspended and everybody can suddenly just float up yeah. effortlessly into the sky and dance around. Um, yeah. 
It's also the moment where any boundary between the objective and the subjective disappears. So Exactly, so, where what's on the inside of the character suddenly is on the outside and everybody's expressing it. So everyone in the arcade is watching Fred Astaire and kind of enjoying watching him dance when we know that in fact these people are not aware at all of what's going on in his head. But all of a sudden it's like his dream takes over the world around him. Exactly. Yeah. A, a great example of this, very simple, uh, is the scene in The Fisher King by... Um, Terry Gilliam, where Robin Williams's character meets up with his his girlfriend, his true love, his romantic interest in the subway station, and then the, the mm -hmm. entire crowd starts to waltz. That's right. Yeah, it's that's a wonderful right. scene where the and of, it's not explained. Yeah. No, it's right? not. And that's what makes it a kind of a musical number setup. Most films just can't quite bring themselves to give you a moment like that without explanation. Right. It's a little bit like what I've said before. Science fiction is fantasy for people that need a reason. Exactly. Likewise, we need a reason why people are just going to start singing and dancing. Okay, so think of it like the standard diegetic, non-diegetic distinction people make with film music, that film music is either the music that the characters can hear, it's music in their world, so music playing on the radio in the movie, that's diegetic, right? Yeah. And then there's non-diegetic, which is the underscore, the background music that plays that the characters can't hear, but we, the audience, can hear, right? And that distinction goes back to, I think, Claudia Gorbman's Unheard Melodies is maybe the first time that distinction was really systematically and rigorously pursued. But very quickly, people start realizing, like, there's lots of situations in film where it isn't binary like that. And uh, in film musicals, it's never binary. There's at least an intermediary mode between diegetic and non-diegetic. So you have a number like the shoeshine number. And, and the naive complaint about something like that is, how does everybody in the arcade synchronize, in, you know, without having planned it out in advance or anything? How does everything come out so perfect that can't happen in real life? How does Fred Astaire just start singing perfectly? Here's a question. Can he hear the orchestra? Can the people in the arcade hear the orchestra that's accompanying his singing? Right. There's no proper, if we are stuck in the binary dialectic of diegetic, non-diegetic, there's no proper answer to that. That's true. That's true. Wow. But there's this intermediate mode, which is the mode of fantasy. Yeah. Raymond Knapp at UCLA calls it musically enhanced reality mode or MERM. In other words, it's still reality. So the answer would be, yeah, everybody can hear that music. That music is part of their reality. But it's a musically enhanced reality, which is to say reality can just become fantasy. Yes. And fantasy, just add music, boom, and you're there. Yeah. And in those moments, there's a British Marxist critic named Richard Dyer who wrote very famously uh, an essay, I mean, famous at least for people who are interested in the academic study of film musicals, on the utopian potential of film musicals. He argues that, look, film musicals don't tell you what utopia, how it would be run. It's not political art in that sense, right? But it's political in a certain sense because it shows you how utopia would feel. Right, right. Not the ideas of utopia, but the feeling of utopia. And the feeling of utopia is the possibility of stepping outside or exploding outside of that iron-bound chain of causality and... Exploding outside of history, which is where utopia is. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Explo exactly. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And that's fantasy. You know, fantasy, for me at least, fantasy means the sudden eruption of the acausal substrate, which makes the most unlikely things just as likely 
yes. as anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, in Dancer, I'm going off the musicals I have seen, and they're not the typical ones. Uh, the, the Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark has a great mm-hmm. scene where Bjork's character is working in a factory and all the machines are making these rhythmic noises and they start to shape a rhythm. It's like a classic cliche thing, you know, and all of a sudden the factory machines are becoming orchestrated on their own and the song begins, right? So it's like the strange, meaningful coincidence of disparate, unrelated things all conspire to make something that exceeds that exceeds the, the, the historical causal chain of events to create a kind of pure meaning, which is what utopia would be in a sense. It'd be like pure significance. Beautifully put. Right? Beautifully put. Lovely. And this ties right into what Deleuze again is saying about Minnelli specifically. He writes a lot about Minnelli in the, book, in the cinema books and also in a talk he gave in 1987 called What is the Creative Act? where he talks about Minnelli's interest in dreams. He says, I'll, I'll just read from uh, page 64 of Cinema 2. He writes, Musical comedy has never come as close to a mystery of memory, of dream, and of time as a point of indiscernibility of the real and the imaginary, as in Minnelli. A strange and fascinating conception of dream, where the dream is all the more implied because it always refers to the dream of another. And what he means by that is that the dream in Minnelli's film is being rethought, reconceived as not a private Freudian Oedipal event mm-hmm. for the Cartesian subject, but rather mm-hmm. as a social event. The dream mm. can englobe the entire world. The dream is an event in the world that has an effect in the world and always involves other people. Once you eliminate the boundary between the imaginary and the real, once the real becomes a part of the imaginary and the imaginary becomes a part of the real, what does a dream become in that, in that way? And then we can think of dreams that really changed everything. You know, the dream of John of Patmos, who wrote the book of Revelation, is a dream that affected the entire world. The dream of Constantine on the eve of his battle for the empire in 312 changed the entire world. When dreams are taken seriously, when dreams are considered to be a part of reality, they reveal an immense power, you know, that is absolutely political, absolutely collective. The dream can become something world altering if it Mm -hmm. is given its place in our picture of the real. And that's what's happening in Minnelli's films. And in a totally horrifying way, I think that's exactly (laughs) what happens in Mandy. Right. So for me, one of the most mesmerizing scenes is when Jeremiah and his cronies have captured Mandy and they've given her a shit ton of drugs. Well, LSD and a a wasp, some kind of black wasp venom or something. Yeah. So we're seeing this scene in a very like color altered. I mean, there's like lots of effects. Tracers and yeah. I mean, I don't have the technical vocabulary to say what they're doing, but like there's a long, long, long shot on Jeremiah's face that he's looking just straight at Mandy. And, you know, you hear him talking and you don't see his lips move or you... Well, sometimes you do, but then... But then yeah. it's melded with another static image. It's in, almost impossible to put into words, but it's a great example of like shooting a face. Like we spend, it feels like hours staring at this face and it's weird indeterminate boundary between reality or at least like tracking the words that he's saying and yeah. whatever inner 
event is happening. His face is turning into Mandy's face and then back into his own face. So yes, it's like this, again, there's this kind of convergence of these two characters into one. It's really, really strange. Yeah. And in this scene, he's narrating his religious vision Mm -hmm. that led him to establish this cult, which is that he had this kind of mystical vision of God where God taught him that there is no distinction between him and the rest of the world. Therefore, everything in the world belongs to him. Yeah. It's his. <laughs> he has only to go out and get it. And that's why he just went and got Mandy, decided that it was his right to just possess her. Yeah. And yeah. that's actually a clever bit of writing because it gives a plausible kind of religious, as it were, a theological motivation. This is the kind of thing you did hear in a lot of kind of new age tinged spirituality from the era the idea mm-hmm. of you know the misunderstanding of that sort of sense of entanglement or integration or the uh the kind of indra's net like uh oneness oneness of the individual to the cosmos and the kind of toxic and catastrophic misunderstanding of that and the tra- its transformation into a kind of just pure selfishness yeah that's kind of a brilliant little bit of writing but quite apart from anything else we're realizing that the horror of Mandy and Red's position is that they have been involuntarily conscripted to someone else's dream. Yes. Yes. On multiple levels, oh. they found themselves conscripted into someone's nightmare. Oh my, I didn't think of that. That's so brilliant. Yeah. And this, this brings me, I'll just read this thing because it's the, it's the quote I shared with you. And it really, really applies to Mandy because of this very specific plot move, which is that the characters get, unbeknownst to themselves, they get caught up in somebody else's dream. Deleuze, in in his talk, What is a Creative Act, 1987, said, but I'm thinking of Minelli. Minelli, who, it seems to me, had an extraordinary idea about dreams. It is a simple idea. We can state it. And it is linked to a cinematographic process in Minelli's work. Minelli's great idea about dreams, it seems to me, is that they most of all concern those who are not dreaming. The dream of those who are dreaming concerns those who are not dreaming. Why does it concern them? Because as soon as someone else dreams, there is danger. Namely, people's dreams are always all-consuming and threaten to engulf us, and what other people dream is very dangerous, and the dream is a terrifying will to power. And each of us is more or less a victim of other people's dreams. Even the most graceful young woman is a horrific ravager, not through her soul, but through her dreams. Beware of the dreams of others, because if you are caught in their dream, you are done for. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.